0: The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, Franco-Belgian lender Dexia has been forced into emergency talks on options uh, to save itself, including an effective breakup.
1: It looks like implicitly or explicitly there will be a bad bank uh, which receives guarantees from the Belgian and French governments
0: banks are being forced to think the unthinkable as regulators begin forcing the world's largest institutions to write living wills that would make it easier to stabilise them or wind them down in a crisis.
2: Some of it is as simple as who has the Microsoft Word licence, and some of it is as complicated as here's how we would wind up our trading book if we had to shut ourselves down tomorrow.
0: Swiss bank UBS has said it still expects to make a third quarter profit despite a $2.3 billion unauthorised trading loss. And finally, we round up uh, on the quarter's M&A activity.
3: Global debt issuance reached levels not seen since the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which is quite a shocking stat in itself.
0: Joining me this week is the FT's chief regulation correspondent, Brooke Masters, M&A correspondent, Anousha Sakui, and by phone from Brussels, our correspondent, Stanley Pinal. First off, the Franco-Belgian lender Dexia. Now, this is not a household name, but they are a big bank. Um, And Stanley Pignal, our uh, our Brussels correspondent, is on the line to tell us exactly what's gone wrong there. Why is Dexia in emergency talks to uh, save itself from collapse?
1: Dexia, Patrick, is essentially a European sovereign lending specialist in the middle of an extended European sovereign debt crisis. That's not the place to be, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly. So Dex specialises in loans to local government, uh, and ultimately that meant it took on a lot of sovereign and sub-sovereign exposure, which is, as you say, is really not a, a good place to be in right now. Uh, ultimately, it was bought down by two things. Uh, on the funding side, Dex is not dissimilar to Northern Rock, uh, for, uh, for our British listeners. So uh, short, the,
0: short-term funding, long-term commitments.
1: Short-term funding, long-term loans. Uh, it, it was trying to fix the situation since 2008, when it got a, a first uh, bailout from the French, Belgian, and, and Luxembourgish governments. But ultimately, it still has 96 billion of short-term funding it needs to roll over, uh, and uh, that market, as you know, uh, has been uh, pretty difficult in the uh, in the past few months. Yeah, so uh, no, the... no
0: issuance by anybody really uh, until last week, since since June or so, in terms of the unsecured. Uh, markets, And I guess Dexia was among those unable to tap the markets.
1: Exactly. On top of that, uh, on the capital side, things were looking pretty grim as well. It has uh, over 20 billion of uh, sovereign bonds of southern European countries. Uh, it was looking at, at haircuts on, on the Greek stuff already. Um, and that, those court,
0: holdings are in excess of its total equity base. I guess. Yeah,
1: that's right. So the, the tangible equity was was rapidly eroding, uh, and it, it, any uh, mark to market on on its Italian bond holdings, for example, uh, would have would have sent its tangible equity below five billion euros. So what's the uh, plan that, now? Uh, the plan now is. It looks like it's going to be essentially what amounts to a breakup of the bank. (laughs) Uh, On one hand, you would have uh, French state bodies taking on French municipal lending because that has systemic importance. Uh, On the other hand, there are still a lot of healthy assets that Dexia has. It has a well-regarded asset management arm. Uh, It has a Turkish retail network, Denizbank. Uh, it has investor services. Uh, all those things are worth money, and they—it looks like they're going to be sold off to essentially finance the runoff of a portfolio of, of troubled assets, which Dexia got from its uh, from its pre-2008 days.
0: So um, it all sounds like it can be managed down in a fairly methodical way. But will there be any ramifications for the broader European banking industry or global banking industry? Because, you know, no bank seemingly can fail or be wound down without some kind of knock-on effects.
1: I mean, it it looks like implicitly or explicitly there will be a bad bank uh, which receives guarantees from the Belgian and French governments. Uh, now any guarantees uh from the we don't know what they look like yet uh but that could add could put additional strain on uh, their credit rating France has still got this uh this AAA credit rating which is uh which is crucial to its uh, eurozone bailout strategy if it were to lose that uh or any threat of losing that would uh, make it think very carefully about what actions to take around Dexia Right. The other issue is around uh, the, uh, the municipalities themselves. Dexia is a huge player in the U.S. Uh, where it, it, it basically helps to bolster the credit ratings uh, of municipalities who want to borrow money on the markets. Uh, it is leaving the market. It is, it is, uh, th- that lending has really dried up. Yeah. Uh, it, that could have a huge impact on municipalities in the U.S., but it's still a little bit too early to tell uh, at this stage.
0: Okay, Stanley, thank you very much for your thoughts on that. Well, if any uh, reminder were needed uh, that living wills and planning for the demise of banks were needed, then uh, Dexia gives us one. Um, That topic of living wills is... uh, uppermost in regulators minds at the moment uh, the world is starting to force leading financial institutions to write those living wills plans effectively on how they could be broken out and broken up in the event of a crisis brooke masters have been looking closely at this uh, latest development brooke what what's exactly happened because this has been in the works for months and months hasn't it
2: Exactly. But the Financial Stability Board, which is a group of central bankers and regulators that tends to set policy and send ideas off to the group of 20 leading economies, has just come out yesterday with its um, latest pronouncement, which is that all bank, big banks, anything that's cross-border and big enough to be scary, um, will be forced to write these. They're called Resolution and Recovery Plans, as the fancy uh, regulators speak for them. And um, they basically said by the end of 2012... Anything that's big enough to possibly require extra capital charges will be will have to write these plans, and and what they basically are. So this are, is what
0: we think—close to thirty of the world's biggest banks. Basically.
2: Yes, and many countries are going to force the smaller, their smaller banks to do it as well. But this is the the global agreement is that the the roughly thirty and possibly even forty, if they if the on the cusp banks are required, will have to do this. And it's a two part plan. First one is the recovery plan. It's a secret plan. What would you do if your bank got into trouble? You know, what would you sell? What country would you exit? Who is likely to buy you? And that is actually one of the most sensitive parts because admitting that in fact. I'd really like to sell my asset management arm to Morgan Stanley. It's not something that Barclays wants to say publicly.
0: Hence the secret nature. Yeah. So where where will these plans be kept? In a vault somewhere?
2: Well, they're supposed to be kept in a vault, but they're also supposed to be kept updated all the time. So it's really unclear how this is going to work. And um, the second half of the plan is, is a much more a how-to model for regulators. Like, OK, we've just gone bust. You've walked in the door. Where Where is everything? And how do we break it up? And some of it is as simple as who has the Microsoft Word license? And so where does it go? And some of it is as complicated as here's how we would wind up our trading book if we had to shut ourselves down tomorrow. And as part of the exercise, they have to do that. They have to instantly try to wind up their trading book and, and figure out how many, what kind of losses they would take.
0: And this, this initiative is basically the big lesson learned from Lehman Brothers when... It was such chaos. Nobody knew where to find stuff. Nobody knew what to do.
2: And and actually, what's interesting is the U.S. regulators who fundamentally caused the crisis by shutting Lehman Brothers down have have started saying, look, we recognize that by shutting all the overseas operations with nothing and giving them no cash at all, we lost money for our taxpayers. And we now know it's in our interest to keep these overseas bits alive to see if we can sell them off to someone and recover money. And so everyone thinks that that the Lehman experience has finally forced everyone to think that you can't just grab assets in in, in insolvency, that in fact it's better to keep the whole thing going enough until you can break it up and sell it off.
0: So to recap on what's happening now, this is in in advance of November's G20 meeting – the global regulators have come together and are kind of finalizing the plan for the next stage of, of drafting these living wills, to setting a deadline
2: and setting standards. And they will be like, standards. "This is what has to be in this plan, and this is you know, you can't say we're doing living wills and then not do anything. This is what you're supposed to be doing." Uh, one of the roughly 30 banks that this will that this will apply to is UBS, which hopefully has absolutely no need of a recovery plan at this moment, but it did announce today that it's hoping to make a profit despite having suffered an enormous unauthorized trading loss.
0: Yeah. Now, UBS, as you say, is um, one of the banks that's uh, going through a lot of ructions at the moment. It might voluntarily uh, choose to restructure itself. Indeed, we're we're expecting to hear in the next uh, few weeks that it's going to shrink its investment banking operations quite dramatically. But... um, on that point, they've uh, they've tried to reassure the market in the wake of that trading loss and in the on the departure after the departure of their their chief executive uh, chief executive Oswald Grubel, that uh, they're still profitable. They've put out a, a, a trading update um, early today, saying that they expect to make a uh, a small net profit and that they're still bringing in new money into their wealth management business. Um, so, I mean, I, I think they're, they're desperately trying to uh, prove they're still on an even keel. Um, the key question now, I think is, you know, how do they, what do they come up with in terms of a plan for restructuring the bank? Um, can they keep together the universal structure? So the retail and, and wealth management on one side with the investment bank or will the pressure from uh, Swiss politicians to shrink back to Switzerland, as basically happened uh, to some degree with with a, uh, Britain's uh, big bailed out bank, RBS, when it was uh, when it was saved and forced to restructure and. Um, And I suppose the other big question everyone's asking is who do they have as a new chief executive? The interim uh, um, incumbent is Sergio Motti, who came in um, only a few months ago from Unicredit, has been swiftly uh, pushed into the top job. And um, we'll be looking to see over the next few months whether he can uh, hold on to that role or whether somebody else comes in. So, um, yes, this is a story that will be evolving um, maybe less dramatically than it has done over the last uh, few weeks, but um, certainly it'll be a big story for the next six months. Um, finally, let's move on to the M&A uh, story. Anusha, you've been looking back at the uh, the third quarter numbers and the volume of deals and the, the amount of money that's raised for all the big investment banks, um, not least UBS, but uh, others as well. And to what extent... M and A activity has offset, I suppose the the poor trading environment. What, who were the big winners and uh, and the losers in this in the quarter?
3: Well, overall, it has to be said it's it's been a, a very disappointing quarter, uh, mainly because you know the sovereign debt crisis. And <clears throat> sorry, you can't really sort of just describe it as European anymore because during that during the last quarter there were the um, issues about the U.S. Uh, debt ceiling um, and the uh, credit rating downgrade. So. Uh, that really uh, had a massive impact on capital markets, which had generated a lot of activity for banks and fees. Um, and those shut down. So global debt issuance reached levels not seen since the collapse of Lehman Brothers, which is quite a shocking stat in itself. Um, and as a result, investment banking fees hit lows not seen since the first quarter of 2009. So just you know months afterwards. So um, you know really what had started as a as quite a positive year with corporates you know being in a very strong position and suddenly ramping up and uh you know either raising raising equity or um you know buying other companies sort of ground to a halt in the summer and, and banks are suffering as a result and um whilst in 2010 the first half was quiet because of the greek crisis and the second half picked up which then followed through to 2011 the second half of 2011 is likely to be fairly quiet, um, as you know the volatility around Europe continues and it continues to create uncertainty for companies. And uncertainty is the enemy of M and A. Yeah. So uh, it's likely to remain fairly muted.
0: So were there any uh, winners within that muted environment?
3: J P Morgan came out top in terms of uh, fee generation amongst all the banks. Uh, which is, is is not surprising in a way because they have they're they're one of they're probably not alone, but they're one of the banks that has been quite successful in using their balance sheet to win advisory business. So they're quite famously, if you like now, um, with the uh, biggest deal of the year, AT&T and uh, T-Mobile, buying T-Mobile after which Telecom, you know, they they sold, underwrote a massive 20 billion uh, debt facility to allow that deal to take place. And so then those kinds of of deals can be very um, juicy for banks.
0: But as you say, until the the broader environment improves, we're probably not going to get quite so many of them uh, over the coming
3: months. Well, there's so, there's some activity going on in the background, but uh, I wouldn't expect anything too No too buttons exciting. being pressed, yeah. No.
0: Yeah. Well, that's it for this week. Um, thank you very much to Anusha and to Brooke and to Stanley. Um, Banking Weekly was produced by Emily Cadman. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash
2: podcasts.